0: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Bible Study Podcast. I am Travis Pauly. And here we have one goal. Learn to love like Jesus. Here again with Wes McAdams. Hi, Wes.
1: Hey, brother. How are
0: you? I'm doing great. I really enjoyed our episode uh, last week. Yeah,
1: me too. Kicked off a new series. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to
0: be continuing in that series today, looking at specific passages.
1: Yep. Yeah. What does this passage mean is the name of the series. And I so like people that. can send in if they haven't already. We already have quite a list of, of different uh, passages for people that have, people have sent in for us to talk about. So you can get on radicallychristian.com, go to the Contact Us page and submit that. Or you could call. We would love to include oh, somebody's voicemail. with I them. love the voicemails. Yes. I love adding those in. 707-238-2216. We're going to so, f- flash that at the bottom yeah, of the yeah.
0: screen for those of, uh, watching the video.
1: Yeah. If you want to call in and leave a voicemail and tell us the passage you want us to discuss, then we'll discuss it. I have several guests lined up in the coming weeks to talk about different passages, but I thought you and I would talk about another passage that somebody wants us to discuss.
0: Awesome. Cool. What's our passage for today?
1: Today is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. And Paul says the main phrase that we want to discuss is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Mm. And then he goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So that's the phrase and the passage that we're going to be talking about. What does it mean, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? So I guess we didn't do this last time, because last week was such a obscure type of a passage but how have you Travis I'm curious to hear how you've heard this passage applied or what 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 it seems to mean on the surface or or you've probably heard people use this phrase before how have you heard it used
0: I guess I've heard it used in terms of like don't be too close I guess would be my interpretation maybe of what people said about it. Yeah. Uh, Like don't be too close to unbelievers. It's not that you can't associate with them. Yeah. It's just those probably shouldn't be your close intimate relationships. Kind of
1: thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I can see that. I've definitely heard it used in that way as well as marriage. A lot of the times I've mostly heard people apply it to marriage. Like you can't marry an unbeliever because it says don't be unequally yoked with them. Um, Now that's... That in and of itself is interesting, but so is the the point that you brought up. Um, specifically, in context, it's not about. Um It's not about marriage, although I think that there is application to that, and we'll talk about that later. But again, that's a later step. And again, that it brings us back to the way we introduced this last week, Mm -hmm. that if we're going to do an inductive Bible study and really try to exegete the passage and really try to understand what it's saying, then we have to do some steps prior to application. Our initial reaction—I think it's because— we tend to study scripture in a couple of different ways. One way we tend to study scripture is devotionally, which isn't wrong, um, but devotional study is just sort of reading a passage and then asking what jumps off the page at you. You know, sure. what, what, what grabs your attention and why does it grab your attention? And then just thinking through how that passage touches your life or influences your life or, or teaches you something and so that's a, a devotional reading and we tend to do that a lot. Mm. Um, just kind of read for inspiration. And and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we're assuming we're assuming something that isn't necessarily true and that is that the surface level meaning or what it seems to mean on the surface without any digging is the actual meaning and that it applies to our own personal life in a straightforward way. Mm. Again, I'll use what I always use, and that's building the ark as as the most obvious example right. of why that's problematic, because if you read the account of the flood, and then you just sort of try to apply. What God said to Noah to your own personal life, well, your spouse or your parents or your friends are going to think you're rather weird for building an ark, and arguably God doesn't even want you to do that. So just assuming that the application is clear and easy to understand and that the application is the same for people today as it was in in the original audience— all of those are assumptions that aren't necessarily true. They may be true, but they may not be true as well. So, so we have to do some initial steps, and that is observation and interpretation, and then we can do application to make sure that we're really applying it in a way that's faithful to the overall message and story. So when we do that first step of observation, we're really just looking for clues. We're looking for what what is being said here, what is the, the general train of thought, I couldn't think of that phrase last week, train of thought. But we want to understand what's the author's train of thought. and, and this passage specifically, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through about chapter 7 and verse 1, that's section 6:14 through 7, 1, is really sort of hard to tell and, and commentators differ on why, is he quoting something else? Is he referring to something else? Was this added later on? It sort of seems like a digression from what he's talking about. He he ends the section right before it. Again, this is part of the observation stage. But if we look at Second Corinthians six, you want to read for us uh, verse verses um, eleven through thirteen of chapter six? Sure.
0: Oh dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us.
1: Okay. So, and, and that really is in line with everything he's he's arguing throughout the book, is he wants them to open their hearts to to him and to his ministry, and to trust him that he really has their best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably because there were people saying, Paul doesn't have your best interest in mind. Paul's out to get you. Paul's trying to take advantage of you. Paul's a false teacher. Paul's um, teaching things that aren't true or whatever. And so he's dealing with, as he always did those who are misunderstanding him and mischaracterizing him, misrepresenting him, and mistreating him. And so at every turn, everywhere Paul teaches and preaches, he has people that are twisting and and distorting his words and his ministry. And so he's constantly having to to deal with this paradox of proving himself Mm. without bragging on himself. Mm. Sometimes we we fail to recognize how difficult that is to, to try to set forth the truth and to be advocates for truth, which requires that we have credibility. Right. And, and so it, it, it requires that we're trying to prove our credibility— but at the same time we're also supposed to be humble and recognize that we're not always right and recognize that that sometimes we have been wrong and we have done wrong and some of the things that our opponents say about us might be true and so having those both things of those both sides of that coin in one hand is is a very difficult thing to do and so Paul brags on his ministry and commends his ministry to them trying to show them, you know me, and you know that I've always had your best interests in mind. You know that I am speaking truth. You know that I am an apostle of Jesus, and so you need to listen to me. Your your salvation depends on you listening to what I'm trying to tell you and and responding well to what I'm trying to get you to do. But the way that he goes about proving that throughout the book of 2 Corinthians—and again. My biggest recommendation is always read the book. Just read the book. If you want to know what chapter six and verse fourteen means, then you have to you have to read the beginning from the beginning or read the whole thing from beginning to the end. Um, and throughout the book, he's he's using what what seems ironic as a way of proving his credibility, proving his reliability. Uh, for instance, what kind of things do you think would would a teacher put on a resume to say, Hey, you can trust me. Like what, what kind of stuff would, might, might, might we assume somebody might put on their resume? Your
0: degree. Right. But, um, yeah. So so your education, places you've taught before. Yes.
1: Successes. So Mm -hmm. your successes, your education, and, and that's what you would expect somebody to, to, show their credentials and say, these are my credentials. I'm I'm well-educated, like you said, where I've studied, where I've taught before, what mm-hmm. I've accomplished, all the good I've done. But Paul doesn't do any of that. In fact, he uses what others would consider weakness as his points of credibility. He says... Um, In chapter 6, and verse uh, starting verse 8, he says, We're treated as imposters, yet we're true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And then he'll go on in later chapters to talk about all the things he suffered as an apostle. This is his resume. His resume is his weakness. His resume is what others would see as foolishness and failure is really his proof that he really is an apostle of Jesus because yeah. he is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus.
0: Well, and I've, I think that's a point of faith and has been a point of, you know, faith in the gospel for so many people for so long is like these men put their lives on the line yeah. when it was like, it was pretty clear right. where that road was going to end. Right, for Nothing them. to gain. Nothing to gain. Yeah. And, and yet, and and you think, what kind of person does that? Yeah. And you think, okay, maybe you can say one crazy person, and yeah. we've certainly seen sure. faiths and religions sure. and sure. cults and all sorts of things yeah. started maybe by one or a handful, but yeah. this many people, this right. many teachers, yeah. who knew where this road was going to end, yeah. uh, putting their lives on the line with, like you said, nothing to gain. That yeah. that makes me feel well. There's there's something to look at here. There's, right. There's something no doubt. more for me to discover here.
1: No doubt. And and people will often die for something they believe is true, sure. even when it's false. But very seldom will somebody die for something if they know it's false, right. if they know it's a lie. Yeah. Like they'll, they'll be, they're willing to lie if it will get them something. But nobody's willing to lose everything for something they know is a lie, yet all of the apostles are willing to lose everything because they really believe that this is true. And the only way they would believe that it's true is if it really was true, if Mm -hmm. Jesus really has been raised from the dead. And so throughout this book, it's really what it is. It's a defense of his apostleship. That's Mm -hmm. what 2 Corinthians is all about, a defense of his apostleship. So we have to recognize that that's true, and we also have to recognize that's the the immediate context of what he's saying here, if we skip down below the section we're looking at today. So we skip down to chapter 7 and verse—read re- verse 2, if you don't mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2.
0: Please open your hearts to us. We have not done wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone.
1: Okay, so so right there— do we see the similarity between what he says in chapter 7 and verse 2 mm-hmm. with what he ended the previous section with uh, in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6? Yeah. In both places, he's saying, open your heart. And so it's almost like this section of 6, 14 through 7, 1 has mm-hmm. just been inserted in there. So some commentators do think it's an insertion, mm-hmm. that something has been inserted into the text, or so so maybe it was sort of a standalone like mini sermon and and it just kind of got inserted right here or maybe as Paul often does he digresses sure. from his overall point to to make this point so for whatever reason that has to be part of our observation process that we're mm-hmm. we're saying hmm he's he's talking about one thing up here and then he seems to stop talking about that and then talk about something else and then he picks up right where he left off a little bit later. So why the the switch in the train of thought? And again, you're only gonna pick up on those things if you're reading through the whole book. And when you're reading through the whole book, most of our English translations are are astute enough to help the reader to see, oh, hmm, it kind of the, the train jumped the track a little bit nice. here or it switched tracks and then it switches back to to the track. And that's not to say that it's inauthentic it's just to say that there's something to pay attention to sure. and observe and just kind of make note of uh, but again the overall context and the overall theme of the book has to do with with the fact that Paul is trying to prove his apostleship prove his credibility to a group of people that are really an interesting mix of of Christians in Corinth because on the one hand you have a city that's very worldly very mm-hmm. pagan um just filled with idolatry mm-hmm. and even most of the Christians within the church there that have come out of that background and have left a life of of pagan idolatry and sexual immorality was mm-hmm. rampant in in Corinth. Yeah. And then Paul is also dealing with false teachers or false apostles who are making accusations about him that may come from more of the Judaizing side of things. Mm-hmm. And that group of people, they were always accusing Paul of being soft on sin. It, it's really hard in that context, or in our context even, to preach about grace that salvation is a gift of God. Mm-hmm. It's it's given by grace because the natural response of religious people to that message is going to be whoa hold on here you can't say it's by grace because sure. and people are just going to keep on living in sin what's going to stop them from sinning if they if if salvation is by grace which is what Paul talks about in Romans 6 again he's addressing that accusation that he doesn't that he's not calling people to repentance that he's mm-hmm. not calling people to live righteously and upright lives but anybody who makes that accusation against paul hasn't really listened to paul because over and over again he calls people to flee from idolatry and to flee from sexual immorality well, that first corinthians was absolutely majorly about that. absolutely yeah. so he he hits that over and over and over again that you cannot follow jesus and continue to live this life of of sin but but there does seem to be accusations against Paul that it's like, well, yeah, but you seem to be okay with some people eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. You know, you sort of like, there's certain occasions where you seem to be okay with that and other occasions where you're not and so they're accusing Paul it seems like of being soft on idolatry and soft on sin and and acting like he's a compromiser and so Paul over and over again is saying this isn't this isn't what I'm saying you're misunderstanding you're twisting what I'm saying and and using that against me so again I, I, that that's part of the context is he has these accusations coming from the the Jewish religious world but then he also has people that are coming from the Gentile world that are still living in sin that he needs to call to repentance. Um, Even in the end of the book, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. And so there's still sin going on in Corinth that he has to deal with. Right as well as continuing to prove his credibility that when he says that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not by works of the Mosaic law, he he really means that and say, but I'm not saying throw out the law because it has no bearing, throw out the law because it's, it's bad and worthless. Over and over again, Paul has to prove and sort of track and and backtrack and retrack and go over these same things over and over again to say, yes, the law is good and right and comes from God. and, And yes, God chose Israel to bring about salvation, but all those who have faith in Jesus are saved by faith. They have received this gift of salvation and inclusion on the basis of grace through faith, but that doesn't mean you can go on sinning just because you're not under the the law of Moses. Now, when he makes this command and says what he says in our section today 614 through 71, it really ties in well with the law. I mean, it's something that that the Pharisees, and again, Paul came from the Pharisees, like that was that's his background, that's his wheelhouse. He knows how Pharisees think. It's something that they would be right in line with. They would be like, oh, well, amen to that. You know, I mean it would right. be something that they would agree with. And and there were points where Paul could agree with the Judaizers that yes, we we have to abstain from sin. But no, we're not saved by keeping the law. We're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by right. uh, obedience to the law. So with sort of all of that in mind, let's read the whole section and finish observing before we jump to interpretation. So you want to read for us, Travis, uh, 614 through one. Okay.
0: Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God.
1: Okay, man, so, so much good stuff in there. And all of it all of it goes back to this idea of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right. And all of this is an explanation of what it means not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers and mm. why he's saying that. And and again, the New Living Translation does a service for its readers, or it's at least attempting to do a service right. for its readers, by, by interpreting as much as it is translating. Right. And so I- instead of... Translating it as "do not be unequally yoked," or recognizing that this is a farming metaphor about yoking two animals mm-hmm. of different kinds together, right. it, it said, "Well, our readers don't understand about yoking different animals together, so we're just going to say." Hit home quite as much, right? As and so it says what in verse fourteen.
0: Don't team up.
1: Team up, right? And so that's that's sort of a metaphor sure. from our our culture about teaming up with somebody, and they, well, they'll understand that metaphor. Now, again, that's helpful, but it's also helpful to recognize sure. the original metaphor in the text because it's actually it's actually a reference to the law. And again, he's quoting from Leviticus when he he makes this long quotation about making their his. God making his dwelling among them, and walking among them, and being their God, and they'll, they being his people. In all of Paul's writings, he is saying that following Jesus is the most Jewish thing you can do. Following Jesus is the natural response to anyone who really loves the God of Moses, Mm -hmm. and of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, if you really love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will follow Jesus, and you will understand that Gentiles who follow Jesus, even though they're not circumcised, even though they don't keep the law of Moses, they're actually keeping the law, (laughs) even though they are not keeping the law by faith they have become doers of what God would have them to do. They're living out the principles and the truths of the law, even though what they're doing is following Jesus and not following the law of Moses. Right. They're not being circumcised. They're not eating kosher foods, because all of those things were a way of pointing to Jesus in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and even his reference here about not being unequally yoked, it's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 through 11, and, and this is one of those laws that people like to make fun of when they, they say how silly the Bible is. And so the Deuteronomy 22 says this, "'You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together.' You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So people love to read that and say, well, that's that's silly. What kind of laws are those? You can't wear clothes of mixed cloth. You can't plow a field with a donkey and an ox. You know, what kind of silly laws are these? Well, Paul would reflect on the fact that when God made laws like this, it wasn't just about the the literal application sure. of those laws. When, when God said, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, it wasn't just because God is concerned about oxen, although he, he is. It's also because God is concerned about humans. And so Paul would apply that to ministers of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9. He would take that law and apply that to when somebody is ministering in the gospel, pay them. Right. And so you might say, well, what does a, a law about an ox treading out grain have to do with paying a preacher? Well, Paul says everything, because it, it's a reflection of how God feels about laborers who are due sure. their, their pay. And so here, this, this law about yoking together, that's a big wooden uh, collar, so to speak, that, that a farmer would put on two animals typically two oxen of the same size, so that they could plow together, so they could share the load together. But if you put a donkey and an ox together and yoke them together, well, it would be a mess. They'd go Mm -hmm. in circles. It it wouldn't work very well. But all of this, even in the law itself, was a metaphor. The the sowing with two kinds of seed, Mm -hmm. or the wearing of two kinds of cloth, or the plowing with two kinds of animals was a metaphor for the purity of Israel to say, don't defile yourself with the people of the land. Don't yoke yourselves together with, with idolaters, because if you yoke yourself together with idolaters, you're going to make a mess of everything. And like sowing a a field with two kinds of seed, the whole yield is going to be corrupt. Everything is corrupt. There's not a purity here. Now it's not about interracial marriage, it's, it's not about ethnicity or race, it's about religion, it's about purity of religion, and we see how Israel ignored this at their own peril, and how many kings, especially, intermarried, but even the people, married unbelievers. They yoked themselves together with, they partnered up with, they teamed up with right. idolaters, and they realigned their lives according to those with whom they're yoked. You can't, two animals can't pull together unless they're headed in the same direction. So they're either going to go in the direction of the ox or they're going to go in the direction of the donkey, but they can't go in two different directions because they're yoked together. And so their destination right. and the, the way they're pulling and the way they're living has to be mirrored to one another. And so you cannot partner up with or team up with an unbeliever without compromising who you are and who you're supposed to be. And so this has a lot of application. But I I think it's, it's another way of Paul proving that when you follow Jesus, you're going to live out these principles, that even a Gentile who comes to Christ is expected to not partner up with or team up with or yoke himself together with unbelievers, idolaters, because it's going to corrupt everything. Now, we'll talk in the next section about, or about uh, interpretation, like what does that look like and what does right. Paul mean by that? But I think we, we could stop there at this is what he's trying to say. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. Okay, well, that does it for the observation portion of our conversation? I think, but again, I I want to encourage people to, if you really want to understand a verse in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, read both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. It it was just like last week, we talked about a passage from uh, 1 Timothy. If you want to understand 1 Timothy, uh, a verse in that that book, read that whole book, but also read companion books, other books written to the same audience, because it's going to have very similar type of themes. And, and this is is true as well. So if you're reading 2 Corinthians, as we are, 6.14, read not only that whole book, but if you can, read 1 Corinthians as well, because it's written to the same audience and will really help you to understand. In fact, I think as we move to this interpretation portion and we talk about what does this mean for them, application is what does it mean for me, but interpretation is what did it mean for them? How are they supposed to take Paul's words here? Obviously, what he, what he's saying is don't partner with unbelievers don't partner with idolaters but the question is why and what okay. does that mean and how were they supposed to live out that principle that he's laying out there because you could you could go to an extreme and say well that means you're not supposed to have any association whatsoever sure. with an idolater but how could they even possibly do that in a city like corinth how would that even be possible And if you read both books together, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then you'll see that that's not what he's saying. In fact, he explicitly says in uh, chapter 5 that total separation from immoral or specifically sexually immoral people is impossible. What he he says there is if somebody claims to be a brother— and yet they're living in sexual immorality have nothing to do with that person but he says right. in order to have nothing to do with idolaters and adulterers and sexually immoral people you'd have to leave planet earth and you can't do that so you have to you have to have association with unbelievers with pagans and i think i think even there is an interesting point of interpretation that we can't get the picture in our head that paul was in favor of Christians living disconnected from the culture and the world around them, that Hmm. Paul expected them not to compromise with the culture, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, uh, Romans chapter 12, but also to be be in the community— but not partnered with the community, and that's sort of a paradox, and it's mm. it's kind of difficult, but we have to acknowledge both sides of that, that he is saying, don't yoke yourself together with unbelievers, uh, don't partner with them, don't team up with them, as the New Living Translation puts it, um, but at the same time, um, you, he recognizes that you can't get away from all associations, nor should you want to, because you want to have an influence on, on unbelievers. In fact, in First Corinthians uh, chapter 14, he recognizes that unbelievers may even come into your worship assemblies. They didn't use worship assemblies as a way of attracting the world to Jesus. It wasn't that they were, you know, as as the modern movements have been seeker sensitive, they right. weren't having their worship assembly be a, a means of outreach, but they did acknowledge that unbelievers may come in, and they need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you need to do things in a way that that even an unbeliever could see could see what you're doing and understand what you're doing. And so he acknowledged that even unbelievers may come into your, your assembly. So he, he's not saying shun them and say, oh, you're going to corrupt us, or you're, you're defiled, or you're dirty, you need to stay away from here. So he's not saying that. Um, he even acknowledges in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about marriage— that that some of you when you became a christian may have already been married to a pagan you right. you were probably married to an idolater and some of those people are going to become christians because of you but sometimes that's not going to happen sometimes somebody is going to come to jesus and their spouse is a a pagan is an idolater is going to idol feasts is right. maybe even engaging in idol sexual immorality at the idol temple mm-hmm. all kinds of things and paul says remain as you are and that that's a hard saying and and he says if if that unbeliever wants to stay with you and they're willing to stay and continue to be your spouse and they're not going to divorce you because you're a Christian, which might happen. They might leave you because you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't need to leave them because you're a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Don't reject your marital vows simply because you're a believer and they're not. Now, I think it's also important to recognize that, that his, instructions about not being unequally yoked would have application to the first century audience to marriage. It doesn't mean you should leave your spouse because they're an unbeliever. But I think there is an application to you, you shouldn't go marry an unbeliever. Right. You shouldn't yoke yourself together with an unbeliever. Just as the Israelites were expected not to marry pagans, Christians would have been expected not to marry pagans, because right. even though they used to be pagans, even though most of these people used to be Gentile, unbelieving, idol, idol-worshiping pagans, they aren't anymore. Their identity has been changed, their nationality has been changed, their ethnicity has been changed, their heritage has been changed in Christ Jesus. Now they're descendants of Abraham. Mm. Even though they're not law keepers, they're not keeping the law of Moses— they're not circumcised, but they're still descendants of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3. So that means that they're going to live out the principles and truths of the law, which is what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is all about. Mm-hmm. They are also going to not marry pagans. You say, but, but they are pagans. And Paul would say, not anymore. Now now they are as, as much descendants of Abraham as any Jewish person ever was right. which again that's a that's a hard truth and a hard reality for them to accept but i think there is i don't think the primary point paul is making is don't marry I- idolaters mm-hmm. but i think that would certainly be included in what he's saying i think the most obvious meaning of what paul is saying is don't participate in anything that is specifically devoted to idolatry. Right. Uh, don't don't participate in that. So I, I don't think again what he's saying is don't don't go to the marketplace and buy things from people that happen to be idolaters. Right. He's not saying uh, because in First Corinthians ten he says if if a pagan invites you to eat and you go eat with them. So he's not saying don't have meals with or have associations with unbelievers. But he's saying there does become a point of partnership, of yoking yourself together with someone that requires you to pull in the same direction, mm-hmm. to to match speeds with one another, mm-hmm. to match direction with one another. That That would include marriage, but it would also include a whole lot of other things, I think, that if you... If you so match your speed with this person and you so link your destiny with this person that for you to go along with them, it would require that you shift your allegiance or your direction to match theirs or that they switch their direction and allegiance to match yours. But one way or the other, you're going to have to change in order to be yoked with them. And unless they're willing to come around to Jesus, then don't yoke yourself with them, because otherwise that means, by implication, it means that you must change your speed and direction to match theirs in order to be yoked with them. That's what happens when you yoke a donkey and an ox together, somebody has to give. Somebody has Mm -hmm. to change what's natural for them in order to match the other one. And it could be that they both are giving a little bit, but either way, it's going to affect the outcome. And Paul is saying, if you yoke yourself together with, if you partner yourself together with idolaters, Mm -hmm. and you change who you are and what you're supposed to be doing, then you are forsaking your identity in Jesus, that in Jesus, you are a partner with Jesus. You are a partner with God. God is in you and amongst you. And so his questions in 2 Corinthians 6 about, does does light have fellowship with darkness? The answer to all of these questions, obviously, is no, but he says things like, um, what what fellowship has light with darkness, or what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Hmm. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so in all of these things, he's he's saying the same thing, that you, you can't take two things that are antithetical to one another and partner them together. You can't take darkness and light and say, okay, somehow you guys are going to have to work together. It's like, no— the darkness becomes less dark, or the light becomes less light, but compromise has to happen when you partner two things that are moving in opposite directions together, they change one another, and as followers of Jesus, you should not be changed in that kind of way.
0: Right, and I think, man, this point that you're making, and going back to the farm metaphor about one, you know, when you're unequally yoked, Mm -hmm. somebody's got to give, that has to me has to do with like you're gonna be led by you're putting yourself in a situation mm. that Paul's describing where you're gonna be led by yeah an unbeliever right and is that the direction you want to go yeah is idolatry the direction you want to go yeah I was thinking about this recently in terms of when you look at Old Testament the mm. the problems that the Israelites had in the Old mm. Testament drifting into idolatry generation after generation after generation like you said people you know, ordinary people, priests, kings, mm. you know, you look at Solomon and yeah. and all the good that he did, and yet all the trouble he got himself yeah. into because he was partnered right. with yeah. uh, idolaters. A thousand foreign women. I mean, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about how it's easy to look back on that and go, you know, when you understand what some of that idolatry was and how mm. barbaric mm-hmm. at the time it was and how you know, I mean, I, you just look back and you think, that wouldn't have been me, right? You know, that wouldn't have been me partnering with those people. And I think... But I don't look at a lot of the things that go on today mm-hmm. that, I, uh, that are... You could easily make an argument is idolatry. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of digging in Scripture you'd have to do to mm-hmm. make that argument. right? And yet it doesn't bother me mm-hmm. like... Looking back at ancient barbaric mm-hmm. idolatry bothers me, mm-hmm. so haven't I already in a sense kind of been led by that because mm-hmm. I'm already I can stomach it easier mm-hmm. even if I don't approve of it mm-hmm. I'm not you know i'm not it doesn't affect me the mm-hmm. same way. I've already been desensitized somewhat just because this is my culture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I look around and I see idolatry and so of it's so much of it's commonplace, mm-hmm. and I think about. In context of what Paul is saying here, to then further partner myself with with that culture, to then like, it's already hard enough being in the culture, mm-hmm. and and not being so desensitized to the things that are going on that, that, that and and so in and, and in so doing, be pulled away from Christ. Mm-hmm. Whereas, it, it really makes me think what, you know, like what we're talking about, what is being unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Because mm-hmm. if it's me being led by someone who's going down a path that, as a follower of Christ, I'm not supposed to go yeah, down, yeah. then that deserves some careful consideration mm-hmm. for me.
1: You know, it you use the word desensitize, and I think yeah. that's a great word. And I was just reflecting on, like, that idea of sensitivity... To sin mm-hmm. and how we, over time, being familiar with sin and being so surrounded by it, mm-hmm. it does desensitize us to it. It makes us so we're not as sensitive to it as we were before. I, I just finished reading a book, and I, I'm not recommending the book. It's written by a by an atheist who's. Uh, um, evolutionist and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of problems with with his, his thinking from a Christian perspective, but it's called um, the righteous mind. And Jonathan Haidt, it, mm. he yeah. he, it was really interesting as a moral psychologist for him to walk through how people think about morality and some of the tests that they've run on different people. And one of the interesting studies was the moral decisions that people make in in um, uh, sort of ethical type dilemmas as, as different questions were posed to people about ethics and morality and is this right or is this wrong and the differences that were made depending on people's atmosphere like what was around them like mm. a hand sanitizer place does it change the way people think about morals and ethics if they're right next to a hand sanitizer or does it change the way people think about morals and ethics if there is a stinky trash can right beside them. And it does. It's really strange how we think about morals and ethics and, and how our cleanliness and purity, refl- it, it influences how we think about things. When we've just washed our hands, mm-hmm. when we feel clean, when we feel separate from things that are defiling we tend to make more moralistic decisions, sure. more ethical decisions. We tend to shun things that are bad and wrong when we feel clean. But the the dirtier we become or the dirtier we feel, then we tend to make less judgmental, less moralistic decisions. Mm. So reminding us of how pure we are in Jesus, reminding us of how we've been cleansed, reminding us of our purity, reminding us that we are walking in light and not in darkness is really important psychologically even, yeah. to help us to make good choices, to, to remind ourselves that that there is there are things in the world that will defile us. It's not what the Pharisees made it out to be. As Jesus reminded them, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. Mm-hmm. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And so it's it's not what the Pharisees believed were the defiling things, but idolatry is for sure defiling. Right. And reminding these people that are surrounded by it that you are light, and when you see darkness and you see idolatry, you should shun it. You should put some space between you and that. You don't want to defile yourself with the things of darkness. And reminding ourselves of that, again— in our way of thinking that sounds very judgmental and moralistic yeah. and but but we have to remind ourselves this is who we are that's not to say we don't love people that are lost paul isn't recommending to them that they hate people that are lost or that they despise people that are lost. He's simply recommending to them, commanding them not to partner themselves with idolaters because as you said, they're going somewhere you shouldn't go. I, I want to look before we really jump into the application stage. I want to look at first Corinthians 10. again, These two books go go so well together. We're we're even missing some of the things that Paul wrote to them. Another letter, at least one other letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Um, And so there's so much that he had to say to this audience. But he says in chapter ten, verse fourteen, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So anybody who would accuse Paul of being soft on idolatry or soft on sin doesn't really know Paul and is twisting Paul's words. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, of course not. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he So again, over and over again, in both of these these books to the Corinthian people, he makes the same point. You are different. You are separate. You are special. That doesn't mean don't have a meal with An idolater, it means don't participate in their idolatry. Don't partner with them in that. Don't eat of their idolatrous table if you know and they know this is actually an offering to a god, because he says that's actually an offering to a demon, and you are participating in demonic worship when you say, oh, you know, whatever, I'm good. There's no such thing as a false god, so I'll just participate in whatever. He says, no, you're compromising, you're defiling yourself, and it's going to affect everything, and so you have to create some separation from from this idolatry. So again, it is, it's important that we keep both of these things in mind, that one, Paul is saying, associate yes, partner no. Know them? Yes. Love them? Yes. Talk to them? Yes. Have meals with them? Yes. Participate in their idolatry? Absolutely not. Partner with them? Yoke yourselves together with them? Team up with them? Absolutely not. And there has to be that distinction. And I think that Christians, and really any subculture, and that's what Christianity is, it's a mm-hmm. subculture, and any subculture has the tendency to do one of two things. Tim Keller has really helped me with this idea that we either have the the tendency to isolate ourselves and to become sort of a, a, a just a, a an isolated, walled-off group where we don't have anything to do with outsiders. Again, this really we're we're starting to transition to, into application. Mm-hmm. We we can point at different groups that are followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus that have done this, the Amish come to mind not to pick on the Amish, but the Amish have done that to say, we are going to remove ourselves from the English, as they would say, we're going to remove ourselves from the culture entirely and Mm -hmm. only associate with ourselves for the most part so that we're not influenced by them, on, on one hand. Sure. Then on the other hand, you have... A whole lot of quote-unquote Christian denominations that have so compromised with the world that it is unrecognizable as Christianity, like totally unrecognizable as Christianity. In fact, there's a story been floating around about a a pastor of some denomination, and she um, became an atheist, but she didn't stop becoming a pastor. She was like, "Well, you know, it's okay. I I I don't believe in God, but I can still do all of this good stuff that I was doing before. That yeah. doesn't disqualify me from Wait, how mm-hmm. does that not disqualify? You don't even believe in the gospel anymore. And but that's exactly the other extreme. So on one right. hand, you can you can have this total isolation, and on the other hand, you can have this total compromise. And what Paul is calling us to do, what the gospel is calling us to do is neither of those and it's not the natural response of any subculture. You you pay attention to like people who immigrate to a country and, and that's what you see. Like in the first generation of immigrants, a lot of times, if they can, they'll find their own community where very they speak their own group, language, yeah. very tight-knit group. And we don't, we don't want to speak your language. We don't want to wear your clothes. We don't want to follow your customs or eat your food. We, we got our own stuff going on over here and we're just going to protect our customs and our culture. Or on the other hand, after a generation or two, you really can't tell that they're part of any sort of subculture. They've right. become integrated into, as we say, the melting pot. And and really, Christianity is something different, is supposed to not follow either of those models, where we isolate ourselves from the community, but also not compromising with the community, where we're involved in our community, where we love them, where we're sharing meals with them, where we're teaching them and talking to them and having relationships with them, but at the same time, guarding our purity and saying, but we are different and we cannot participate and partner with and and yoke ourselves together with things that defile us. And so being very clear about what defiles people and when we're defiled and knowing where those boundaries are and how to implement them and how to practice them this is what living as exiles and sojourners in every part of the world is all about well I
0: think we're supposed to be able to do that because we of who we serve like we're it always helps me when we talk when we're talking about idolatry and we're putting it in a modern context Mm -hmm. helps me to understand like what is idolatry Mm -hmm. and the idea that it's you're putting something on even plane or maybe even higher than God yeah and so the idea of being unequally yoked with somebody, like you said, it doesn't mean you can't associate with them. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with them. So you know, have, have a meal with them, love them, like mm-hmm. you said, you should still be able to see that person and should see that person as a ch- child of God, Absolutely, as a yeah. as somebody made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. But they may not be putting they may not be putting the highest in its place. Mm-hmm. And when I think about it in those terms, it feels a little less like I'm. I'm just arbitrarily saying, "Well, you're not in my club." Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, no, there's a re- there's a yeah. real yep. deep spiritual, like you said, purity reason mm-hmm. for thinking very carefully about mm-hmm. this. And absolutely. and again, when I when I go back to who we serve, yeah. it helps me understand that a yeah. little bit
1: better. Absolutely. And that and that's exactly, and I think that that's exactly the the thought process that we have to have here is that we have to reflect on what Jesus has done for us mm-hmm. because I'm the pagan, I'm the idolater. I'm the sinner, Absolutely. I'm the, yeah. the filthy, defiled, dead one I was dead in my sins and transgressions and Jesus came and had compassion on me, yet in his compassion for me and his suffering for me and with me, he didn't defile, myself, defile himself by participating in what caused my pain and agony he had so much compassion for me that he was willing to come down, roll up his sleeves, get dirty with me, but not sin with me, right. so that he could rescue me out of that, and to follow Jesus in those footsteps is to live that out now as little followers of Jesus, as little imitators of Jesus to say, okay, I have a friend over here who is lost in sin and darkness, and he is idolizing things of the world. He is lost in his sin. He has dehumanized himself, and I love him, and I want him to be rescued from that. I want him to come out of the darkness and into the light. Well, If that's true, then I should go to him, suffer with him, suffer for him, uh, roll up my sleeves and and have meals with him. But it also means that I cannot for a second pretend like it's okay and that I'm okay with the things that have put him in that condition in the first place. If I love him and want the best for him, then I'm going to reject the things that caused his pain. Now, again, I have to be careful there because there are so many that, that don't reflect the compassion and kindness, yeah, and we we tough. have this tendency to bash people over the head. Don't you know what a horrible sinner you are? And the fact is, they don't know what a horrible sinner they are. None yes. of us do. That's Like you said, we become not only desensitized to the sin around us, but we especially become desensitized to the sin within us. Yeah. And of course, they don't know that they're doing wrong, or else they wouldn't be doing it. Very few people do what's wrong on purpose. Most right. people do what they you think is right. Slip into it exactly. We do what's right in our own eyes, and that's what the world has done. and And they don't see what they're doing because when you're stumbling around in a dark room, the problem isn't that there's stuff on the floor. The problem is that you're in a dark room right. and that you need light. And so, no yelling at them. Well, don't you see that thing you're tripping over? They don't. They're in darkness. Right. You have mm-hmm. to turn the light on for them. And so understanding that that we have to love people in the world, but not participate in worldliness. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? I I, I think my I mean, I think we could talk for two years yeah. about application to this. And I think that it reflects wisdom. I think you've pointed out several times that there are modern equivalents to idolatry i love tim keller's definition of idolatry is that it's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing Mm -hmm. and and anybody who does that and really any ideology whether we're talking about liberal idea ideology or conservative ideology or moderate ideology political just any kind of earthly political ideology it's very easy to take a good thing take a good idea and make it an ultimate idea and so there are idolaters all around us and we have to be very careful that we don't partner with them. That doesn't mean we don't ever agree with them because idolaters are right about a lot of stuff and they recognize a lot of stuff. They recognize the goodness of things. Your progressive friends are right about a lot of stuff. Your conservative friends are right about a lot of stuff. Your moderate friends are right about a lot of stuff. They recognize the goodness of different things and different ideas, and we can affirm that and say, you're right, that is good, or you're right, that is bad. But in in worshiping the idol of their ideology, they have become trapped in a dehumanizing whatever darkness, and when we so agree with them that we partner with them, well, then we've we've gone off the rails. Or Or when we so disagree with them that we end up hating them and despising them, then we've gone off the rails. And so there's a danger on both sides of this discussion that we become so enamored with our worldly friends that we partner with our worldly friends and follow them into worldliness or that we so disagree with our worldly friends that we end up hating them and despising them. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Polly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.